Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really happy to have you here today. Okay, so in terms of exploring a full-spectrum spirituality, one question that comes up again and again and again in different forms is, if I were to summarize it, it's the question of what is the relationship between what we do on the meditation cushion or our yoga mat, and how does that lead to maybe a mitigation, or how does that improve many of the social ills that we see around us, really see all around us in in our society? And um, I'll be taking a stab at that question. As I try to say in the talk, I don't pretend to have all the answers on this. This is an incredibly complicated question. Um, But one, one way that this question might be responded to is to consider how spiritual practice helps transform consciousness and specifically in transforming consciousness it helps the, the the consciousness within an individual start to transcend biases cognitive biases that fuel human conflict through tribalistic perception or or said more clearly in transcending bias uh, we help transcend the tendency to see ourselves as separate from each other and in transcending that sep- that perception of separation, we really set the stage for more collaborative engagement with each other, where we're not in conflict in a zero-sum, meaning I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. We, we, we transcend a zero-sum dynamic and enter more into what my friend Bob Wright calls a non-zero dynamic, which is a collaborative cooperation where if we both, if I win, you win too, and uh, if you win, I win too, but we also stand the chance of losing together. But when we play together, when we work together, when we collaborate, we have a much better chance of succeeding. And that's one of the ways I think that spirituality supports or facilitates less conflict in the world through the transformation of individual consciousness. So before I give you that talk, I just want to make a few quick announcements. One is that I've started an essay series through my newsletter. My newsletter is called Letters from the Path. And the essay series that I'm engaged with now is looking at how the practice of yin yoga helps harmonize chi. And if I were to connect the, the, the theme of harmonizing chi, that's energy within one's being, both physical, energetic, emotional, and sort of uh, attentional even. Um, but when one's chi is harmonized, that also leads to a, a, an experience of samadhi, or a, a unified, gathered, collected experience of being. And I think the relationship between samadhi, or harmonized chi, and the transcendence of bias, uh, th- these are all connected because, at least in the spiritual uh, landscape and, and, and the pedagogy of many spiritual traditions, the the awakening of consciousness to itself, i.e. the transcending of egoic identification, is more readily accessed when samadhi is developed. Uh, and I'll be probably looking into this more over subsequent uh, podcast episodes and, and, and classes. But there is a relationship here between the what we do on the mat and our ability to, in, say, in some ways, open up to a, a newer, broader, 
more encompassing and expansive perception of predicaments or situations or the world that we're in. So uh, if you're at all interested in that series, how yin yoga harmonizes chi, how that leads to samadhi, you can uh, subscribe to that for free. Um, there's a link in the show notes, and that's just my newsletter, Letters from the Path. There will also be uh, a s parallel series of workshops I'll be offering, and you can learn about those yoga energetic workshops on my site under joshsummers.net forward slash events. Um, and towards the end of July, I'll be giving a four-day intensive on the practice of yin yoga um, sort of analyzed through the lens of traditional Chinese medicine. So I look at how yin yoga influences the qi, the energy of the body through stimulation of channels and through really the strengthening of the Chinese organ systems to promote, store, and circulate the vital energies that are described within the Chinese medical model. So you can get that series in your inbox and also a few practice videos that I made on yin yoga by subscribing to Letters from the Path. And then again, there's a link in the show notes there, along with other ways that you can support the podcast. You can support the podcast by taking a, an online class with me or Terry. You can buy the book that Michael Brooks and I wrote called The Buddhist Playbook, which is really a kit. It's a, it's a book about developing a meditation practice and then uh, sustaining a meditation practice through wise habits. And that includes five guided meditations that I recorded for that programming. Um, and there's a few other things there in the show notes, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. I have started to hear from many of you, and I really appreciate the responses and the questions and the counterpoints and, and, and that engagement. It really helps uh, sharpen and clarify how I think about these themes, and I, I feel like the dialogue is something that um, I benefit from tremendously. So just if you've been writing to me or sending me questions in email, through email, thanks so much. And if you'd like to, just send it, shoot an email to josh at joshsummers.net, josh at joshsummers.net. Okay, now to, here is today's talk on transcending tribalism. This evening's talk um, will be much like last week's session where I will uh, answer, try to answer or give a response really to a question, a big question that was uh, submitted to me by one of you um, who shall remain anonymous as, as I try to keep your anonymity uh, in sharing the, the typed questions that come through email. Um, but it's a great question and I think it really cuts to the, the heart of what I, what I value in the spiritual process slash spiritual path. Um, and I just hope I want to offer a response here and, and hope that in, in the hope that it might stir reflection on your part and, and, and engagement to think of your own way of responding or answering to this type of question. So the, the questioner said over email, since I began reading Pima Chodron, this is a Buddhist teacher, but since I began reading Pima Chodron and thinking about self-forgiveness and the lessening of suffering, although it makes a lot of sense, sort of conceptually, I'm adding there, she writes, sometimes it lands quite cheaply. Sometimes it lands cheaply. For example, 
I would guess that most people who have access and time for these kinds of teachings in the West are themselves not living in serious, I'm paraphrasing here, not living in serious suffering, not living in poverty, and that are they're fairly healthy. Not that they don't have suffering, she continues, not that they that their suffering can't bring them pain and perhaps pain drive them to unhealthy choices and produce bodies and minds that are suffering, none of which is good. And she sort of continues, she said, I guess most of the suffering that I'm referring to has roots in childhood and goes unattended, unattended and then becomes self-suffering. But again, it rings kind of hollow compared to the suffering of the world that is real in the sense of being a cycle of poverty or hopelessness or abuse or torture at the hands of authorities, for example. And I'm just going to edit a little bit here, but the final line was, I, I sometimes have a hard time justifying my own choice to bring less suffering to my life when others suffer so much more. I sometimes have a hard time justifying my own choice to bring less suffering to my life when other, others suffer so much more. And I, I've, I've thought about this kind of question, this type of topic for a long time. Um, and I don't pretend to have all the answers for it, which is why I'm fra framing it as a response of, of one of many. Um, <clears throat> but if I were to paraphrase it and try to boil it down to what this person's asking, I might frame it a little bit more edgy and say, isn't all this meditation, spiritual stuff, just selfish, self-centered and self-indulgent? It's all focused, it's, you know, it's internal time focusing on oneself. How does that lead to any kind of transformation with all of the societal ills that are on evidence wherever you look, if you care? What's the relationship between what we do on the cushions, for, for example, and all of those problems out there in the real world. And from the beginning, I just want to give a, a, a strong caveat that what I'll be saying is in no way in contra conflict with action in the form of political or social act activism. It's not a substitute. The, the, the contemplative path is not a substitute. I just see it as a, a vital component to an, a life of, of, of sort of civically minded social action. It's a, it's a vital component, which I'll try to explain as I go through the rest of the answer now. So one way of answering this um, brings me back to a, a conversation I had in the few weeks leading up to my time of going to Burma or Myanmar for roughly two and a half months, where I was going to be on, on a silent meditation retreat for two full months of that time. And it was a, it was a particular window in my life where I had finished my graduate studies in acupuncture. And I knew I had six months before my student loans kicked in and I had just enough money in my pocket to purchase a ticket to get over and back. And I went because I knew it was this window of time where I would, I, I didn't have as many responsibilities professionally or personally on my shoulders at that time. I, I saw it as a real gift of a window, which I seized. 
but when I was talking to people about going, you know, just casually making small talk, yeah, I'm going to go to this place in Myanmar in the jungle where uh, we'll eat maybe one and a half times a day or two times a day and basically sit on a hard floor and walk on a hard floor for most of the waking hours. And there'll be mosquitoes and snakes and all of those things. And everyone would more or less frame this question to back to me. Like, well, why do you do, why do you have to do it like that? <laughs> Aren't there more comfortable? Couldn't you do it at a place that has a hot tub? Couldn't you get three meals a day? Well, why do you have to go there? And, and part of that question was, and this a friend's husband framed it this way. He said, what do you hope to achieve? What are you hoping to achieve? And my answer was, and I had to think about it for a second, but my answer at the time was, I want to know, I personally want to know what it's like to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion. I want to know what it's like, to, even if it's a moment, I want, to be, I want to know what a taste of what it's like to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, that answer is a nod, direct nod, to the way I have heard the Buddha described enlightenment. So it, you know, I didn't want to say to this person, I want to know what it's like to be enlightened. Because that sounds so egoic and egotistical and grandiose and all that. But the Buddha very clearly defined awakening as freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's a sort of a humble way of saying, I want to know what enlightenment is. And the reason I like this formulation of speaking about enlightenment as the, the freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion is that these mind states or these mental factors, greed, hatred, and delusion, are what you could call the primary biases or the primary distortions of mind that perpetuate suffering in life. I remember being on a retreat where a teacher, I think, was reflecting on the, these, these, this, this tri tri trio, the triad of greed, hatred, and delusion. And they said, I mean, just look, open up the paper. Every story has something to do with greed, hatred, and delusion. Or as another person said, if it, quoting the, the famous phrase in journalism, if it bleeds, it reads. And this brings me back in a way to something that I read last week, a, a, a passage from the British monk Ajahn Sachito. He says, the Buddha encourages us to see things directly without bias to be absolutely honest. So one of the phrases that is used in describing the practice path is, quote, to clear the mind of bias, to clear the mind of bias, and to insightfully see how things have come into being. And what I like about both the Buddha's formulation of enlightenment and Ajahn Suchito's reflection on it is that when we place awakening in the context of 
waking up out of the distorting effects of cognitive bias, to me, at least, that feels very uh, tangential. It feels very tangible is the word I'm looking for. It's possible to look into your mind to see how a thought or a feeling conditions your perception of something. And if you stay with it long enough, you can start to see what it's like. The experience, the same experience might be like without that conditioning influence. Now, it's just a simple example. If you have enough time on the cushion, you get to work with niggling, irritating physical sensations. And the conditioned reaction to an itch or to a numbness or to an ache is to fight and struggle with it. It's sort of the deeply biological conditioned reaction. And then to get, and then you can see this kind of a tempest in the teapot phenomenon where in the sitting, it can mushroom and expand into this big drama in your mind and heart. What am I going to do about this thing, this itch, this foot problem? But if you work with it and you, and you apply many of the methodologies that the contemplative community offers, namely watch it, watch that, watch everything that's going on within that sensation and the reaction to it, eventually you start to see that there's gaps in between the, 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 the mental reactions. And there might be sometimes a complete quietude of mental reaction to the sensation and there's just the sensation and when it's just the sensation the whole edifice of conflict dissolves just part of the unified experience of your reality at that moment <clears throat> so learning to see as we develop self-understanding on the path, as we start to understand ourselves, what our experience is and how perceptions, thoughts, and feelings condition our per how we see, understand, and relate to what's going on. It becomes very quickly that we're, it becomes clear very quickly that we're, creating a lot of unnecessary suffering for ourselves on one level. And yes, I want to acknowledge that learning to lessen your mind's tendency to generate its own suffering can seem somewhat selfish. And I may not be able to get through all of this tonight, but in my mind, there's a direct relationship between personal suffering and how the person that is suffering engages with the world. There's a direct line. How you see the world, how you understand your experience within the world. And if it's suffering, if, if your primary experience is suffering, you know, it's the likelihood that you will make other people miserable around you is much greater. And that can be all part of, we could call this self-improvement project in a way. But it goes deeper, and this is what I want to sort of tie in now. And it goes deeper at the level of who you take yourself to be, what you take yourself to be. 
and I'll, I'll come back to this issue of identity. What is what is a self in a, in a little bit? But a friend of mine um, who I've been having a sort of ongoing series of conversations with on the podcast and, and on his podcast, a friend of mine named Robert Wright um, has been working on a new book. Uh, he has written multiple books already, a lot of them having to do with evolutionary theory, particularly on, in terms of how evolution shaped our psychology, the field of evolutionary psychology. Um, and he's, he's done a kind of macro study of how groups, people, societies interact and kind of the direction that our species is going. And he's very concerned now, and I share his concern, that, uh, uh, let me pause for a second. He's writing, he's working on a book called The Apocalypse Aversion Project. The Apocalypse Aversion Project. And people who write a book with the title The Apocalypse Aversion Project are beginning with the fear that a, an apocalypse is imminent. And so he, he, he recently on his newsletter put out a, a book review of how the book is book writing project is going, and he and he and he listed seven or eight tenets of his book, like the, the core operating principles of his book, the core thesis. And I just want to give you a few of those here, but one of them is that the first tenet is be afraid. Be afraid, he said. There is a very real prospect of global disaster global catastrophe in the next few decades. Very real uh, potential for that. Uh, in some ways, and many people are saying this, the pandemic is just a dress rehearsal that the world has done pretty poorly with. But this, this catastrophe could come in any number of ways. It could involve bioweapons, climate change, nuclear weapons, pandemics, either biological or engineered pandemics, arms races in space, as well as complications with artificial intelligence, just to name just a few. But in his analysis, what all of these global threats present is a, a, a situation where our, the human species has the chance to solve these problems if they work, if the humans work together in cooperation. They work in what you would call a non-zero dynamic where they collaborate with each other. And if we're able to collaborate, we stand a chance at vanquishing any number of these problems. But without cooperation, if we see each other in a zero sum relationship to each other, if I win, you lose, and you win, I lose. We see our predicament in zero sum terms. We never come together to solve the issues we need to face. Now, this is his kind of unique thesis here, but he, he considers, and, I, and I, I agree with him in the sense that this is partly the, the reason why I chose to more or less dedicate my life to this contemplative journey, both as a practitioner and as someone sharing tools to help develop this path. The reason I, I, I chose this path is that in agreement with Bob, the main impediment in his view, the main impediment to coming together and solving these global issues, 
the, the main impediment to a, the emergence of a global community slash global governance slash global policy to handle and tackle these issues is rooted in human psychology. So the main impediment is rooted in human psychology. Here's what he said in his uh, book review or book report. Quote, the political problems that impede the evolution of international governance, so the, what, in, they impede the emergence of international government, governance. These are rooted in human psychology, mainly in what is sometimes called the psychology of tribalism. This psychology consists largely of cognitive biases, notably confirmation bias and attribution error. So confirmation bias is when you, you, you take on board information that confirms the ideas you already like and you reject evidence or data that doesn't line up with what your ideas of what you like are. And attribution error is to sort of misattribute causation or intent on an actor. So you might say someone did that because they're inherently evil or someone did that because they are of a, they, they're blinded by a religious doctrine or something. So attributing wrong and an incorrect error to someone's motives or intentions. <clears throat> and then he finishes, he says, the psychological underpinnings of the planet's predicament are so deep seated and so subtle in their workings and thus so hard to overcome that averting catastrophe, averting the apocalypse will require a concentrated or concerted effort on the part of a growing number of people, that's you and me, a growing number of people to counteract them. If successful, if successful, this effort to transcend the distortions of thought and perception, greed, hatred, and delusion that constitute the psychology of tribalism would mark a major advance in the evolution of human moral consciousness. And I know some of you around back in the 60s, which I'm sort of jealous about when that, that ethos was alive and well. But this is the the essence of it that we can implement we can we can dream up all sorts of policies we can have all sorts of um, kind of programs and and restructuring of institutions and all of that's good all of that's important but if the consciousness of the humans that are in these systems are rooted in biases. If the consciousness of individuals in these systems are rooted in biases of tribalism, the problem self-perpetuates. <clears throat> so, and I'm clearly, I'm not, hopefully you know, I am not the only one to have ever said this sort of thing. But the practice, at the heart of it, part of this practice path is waking up out of a sense of self that is identified with the thoughts and feelings that drive these biases. 
In other words, if we value a less tribalistic society, if we value a less biased world, as all my teachers have said, start with yourself first, look within and wake up out of that, the bias trap of the ego in a way. So there, I've, I've talked about this a few different ways over the weeks and months, but one way of talking about this shift is that the ego, the egoic consciousness or the egoic level of identity, what we take ourselves to be is an amalgamation of identity with sensation in the body, thoughts, feelings, memories, etc. So when we think our, when we ask ourselves and answer it with language, we ask ourselves, who are we? You know, the ego ready for you're X, you're this, you're that, you're, you know, you're defined by a phrase or concept. And that on one level is fine. On one level it's fine, except within that identity is a sense of separation. There's a me here, permanent unchanging me here, separate from the world I find myself in. And then, and different ways of saying this, but then driven by that perception of separation, there's a whole arsenal of strategy that gets employed to protect that self, that sense of self. And those strategies start to fuel, I would say, um, or, or give added fuel, added energy to the biases that see separate, see through separation, they see threat or they see, um, and, and there are genuine real threats out there. Don't, don't misunderstand me, but there's a sense of being separate from the problem that we're in rather than seeing things from a perspective of what the spiritual traditions refer to as being unity consciousness. So we wake up out of being a separate ego and identified at that level wake up to awareness being or a unity consciousness that's not separate from the world you experience. The world is not separate from you. The world is within you. And this is where um, you know, different traditions will voice this differently. So I don't, I don't want to try to give exclusive emphasis to any one formulation on this, but when the world is one, literally, when your perception of your, of your being is unified with the world you're in, and there are studies, some st preliminary studies on this, your susceptibility to these biases, your, your whole orientation to an engagement in the world radically shifts because of that perception of non-separation. There's a direct connection. There's a direct caring. So, and I, and I would even go further and suggest, and this is, this is sort of speculative here, um, I think those that do start to taste awakening, what it's like to wake up out of being identified with the ego, 
the ego is no longer the master. The, the, in some some respects, the ego becomes the servant to the awakened heart. You know, some teachers would say that the ego is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. So when when we're kind of gripped by it, it becomes this this driver of separation. When we wake out of it, it allows us. It, it becomes the the bridge between our awakening and how we are in the world. And what the speculative point I want to make is that I think I have, I have a suspicion that these qualities that, that, that we wake up to, that we, we wake into or realize with ourselves from non-separation are contagious in a good way. And the, I know many of you have heard me say this, but the, or share this before, but the, my favorite metaphor for this is from the Zen teacher, the late Zen teacher, Charlotte, Charlotte Joko Beck, where she describes normal humans, the egoic consciousness is one of being frozen around habit patterns, frozen around biases, distortions, misperceptions. And so in being in, fro- in that frozen state, we're like an ice cube. But she says, you know, if one ice cube does practice, that one ice cube does zazen or sits, comes down to their cushion and sits, by bringing awareness, the gentle light of awareness to the entire pattern of egoic being. And this is, this is really the, the path in a like, simplistic nutshell. By, and this is so. This is the meditation instruction for the night. By just bringing awareness, again and again and again. Let me rephrase, rephrase that because it's not that you have to bring the awareness, but just letting awareness rest upon the pattern of the ego. I mean, the ego has to relax enough so that awareness can shine on it. But as awareness rests on the pattern of who and what we think ourselves to be, feel ourselves to be conceptualize ourselves to be that whole pattern is start it starts to be experienced as a pattern within the field of awareness itself the awareness that knows it is related is connected to that pattern but not defining that pattern or is not defined itself by that pattern Meditation is one route into this experience. Yoga is. There's many other ways. But it's a discipline. What I love about the meditation, and this is where I think it it, um, is important in this apocalypse aversion project, is that it's one thing to say, go and get into a flow state when you're on a bicycle or skiing, or you go and do a ceremony of ayahuasca or psilocybin or something. You know, it's one thing to have this experience triggered by an event or a molecule. But it's a very another thing to stabilize within that awareness, stabilize within that realization. It's not that those other things aren't helpful, and I, 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 I'm, I'm interested in them all, but to really stabilize and make a, create new habits of perception Require, that requires a practice. And that gets back to what Howie was talking about a few weeks ago, that a practice of noticing, a practice of paying attention, a 
practice of value, valuing the skills of per, per, uh, perception and look practicing looking into and understanding experience more ultimately can start to wake start you can start to feel awareness waking up out of the dream of being defined by a thought it's not that thinking's bad it's just that when the identity has contracted and said oh that thought is mine and we and that happens unconsciously reflexively over and over again when we start to see that process behind the stage from a, from a backstage view we wake up to a very different dimension of ourselves and an experience of the world and and this, this issue of non-separation is crucial to i think to world peace To not have it, to, to know for yourself that you're not separate from the person you're listening to or talking to. That the, the light of consciousness in your being is shining through the light and the eyes of the being you're talking to. To know that not as a thought, not as an ideal, but as a lived reality is the game. It changes the game. So, sort of think I'm coming towards the end here, but coming back to the, what the questioner uh, brought up, like isn't focusing on reducing our own suffering kind of self-involved or self-focused, particularly when there's all these other problems out in the world around us. And I understand why it can seem like that. But if we're really, um, if we really care about our own suffering and the suffering we see in the world around us, these things are not disconnected. Particularly at the level of engagement. That if we want to be effective in terms of how we relate to each other, being in the prison or imprisoned by perceptual distortions, particularly the distortion of being separate. It behooves us to, to, to sort of practice in a way to, to enlarge the scope of who we think we are or what we think we are. And this is a longer thing that they'll probably dog ear for another time but there is a relationship between healing oneself, like at the, at the individual self level, which we all are. So even though I'm talking about this, this, this ultimate reality of non-separation or unity consciousness, that awareness, that understanding, that awakening does not negate the separate self experiences that are around us all over the place. So there are still separate beings. I'm not saying that you're with awakening, your body suddenly you know, goes up in smoke. There is, we all are, there are separate beings on one level of reality for sure, but there's a larger perception, a bigger perception of unity that's available. And, and this has certainly been my experience. Um, and I've talked to enough people about this, that it seems to be their experience too, that if the, if the personality based being like if the story of Josh at the being of Josh 
or whatever your name is, has trauma in any form, that unresolved wound or wounds often makes the realization of awakening much more challenging. It blunt because there's the trauma can blunt perception and can create um, more, uh, I want to say sticking points, but fixation points where, where our identity gets stuck around being overly identified with something. And so the healers out there are doing wonderful work in terms of helping people process, metabolize, and integrate whatever trauma they've experienced. And that, I think, functions very in a very important way within the overall process of waking up. You can't have people, to be clear, people can have awakenings without processing their trauma, without healing their individual stuff. The problem is then you have an awake person or awake being who then um, expresses their awakening through an un, unhealed uh, individual. And I think that's where you get a lot of the, the kind of the spiritual pathologies that we see in the, in the different power dynamics in certain communities. So if I were to summarize this all, I would say we heal the small self and practice is one way, can be one way of helping that. So learning to heal the small self is very important. And you know, therapy, other kinds of uh, personal work are all helpful. But in healing the small self, we also have a chance to wake up to the capital S, big self, which is the unified experience of the world. And if, and if as Bob is saying here, if, um, if we hope to really be an active participant in a world of tackling the challenges that we're all facing, and, and I, I'm picking the global ones. There's plenty at the domestic level that, that he writes about at the, at the national level, particularly in this country, that make participation in the global scale impossible. Like our, our, our national strife and the, and, the, and, the, and the wounds in our own nation make it much more difficult to collaborate and come together to, to, um, to tackle these global issues. So... In my view, and just take this with a grain of salt, you don't, I'm not asking you to believe anything what I'm saying or agree with it. I just reflect on it and, 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 and give, me, give me feedback. Um, that it might seem like we're doing something that is self-focused or for our personality or could be even labeled, and this sometimes it gets derided as self-help, that we're just doing self-help here. But in the bigger picture, to whatever degree we're able to transcend our biases, and these speak just wake up to more and more of our biases, and, and, and that is the first step in terms of sort of transcending them. The more we can do that, the more we'll be adding um, a new consciousness into the world.
Okay, I hope you enjoyed that talk, uh, that opening reflection. I realized towards the end of the talk, I, I, I shared a metaphor from Charlotte Joko Beck on comparing, where she compares a human being to a, an ice cube, a frozen ice cube, kind of a solid block of habit patterns. And I don't think I finished the uh, the metaphor. I didn't play it like play it out fully. Uh, the metaphor is that that as a frozen ice cube, uh, we're we're sort of frozen within habit patterns, and um, we get into a lot of conflict when we collide with other ice cubes. Chips fly, if you will. But as Charlotte says, if we if the ice cube is fortunate enough to have access to the teachings and to the practice, and they put the practice into their own experience and sit, like do meditation. It, the practice is analogous to bringing a, a light of warmth, I should say, a warm light to the ice cube. So awareness that we that we bring to rest on our experience is like a, a warm light that rests on the frozen patterns of, of our being, and the ice cube starts to slowly melt. And so that melting is a metaphor for the transformation of consciousness from being rigid within fixed patterns to be more fluid and less and less unilateral. So if that wasn't at all confusing at the end of the talk, I apologize, uh, but I want to make, I want to make, try to clear that up. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to today. Uh, thank you for your practice. Keep practicing, stay strong, stay safe, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.